Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that as we sit under it now together as your church, that you would humble our hearts, you would soften them by your spirit, that we would be receptive to what you have to teach us uh, this morning uh, by these words. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Failing to recognize someone can be quite embarrassing, can't it? Failing to recognize someone. A few years back, my whole family went to the airport to pick up our cousins. They'd flown down to just stay with us for a few days. Uh, We met them at the arrivals gate, and then we started to head back to the car. And my dear grandmum, who was, you know, getting on a bit in years, she went off separately to pay for the car parking. Uh, My family, we all went back to the car, got into the car, and we just waited. And we waited. And we waited. And after a while, after quite a bit of waiting, my dad got quite worried. It had been much time, and there was no sign of my grandmum. So he got out of the car again, raced back into the airport, had a look around in the arrivals, departures everywhere, couldn't find her. Came back out again outside, looked around the, where all the taxis were pulling up, and he saw across in the car park uh, another car. He had never seen this car before, and he saw grandmum sitting in it sitting next to this total stranger who was looking quite worried himself. <laughs> My dear grandmum had just got into his car. He'd fa- she'd totally failed to recognize that the man sitting next to her wasn't my dad. This wasn't a car that was familiar to us, to her. And of course, she was really embarrassed. You know, failing to recognize that she was in the wrong car with the wrong man. And yet there are other times, aren't there, when it's not so funny when failing to recognize someone is actually a lot more serious. Remember reading a news story a few years ago about an expat in Thailand who received a long jail sentence because he he just went out to some bar in Bangkok one night and for some reason he decided to vandalize a picture that was on the wall, just hanging there. He didn't realize at the time that it was a picture of the king of Thailand. And that very day when he had gone down to the bar, it was the king's birthday. So he was made an example of. He was arrested. He was thrown into jail for offending the monarchy. He didn't recognize who he was insulting. And so he paid the price for it. You know, failing to recognize someone and respond appropriately can be really serious. Well, Luke so far has been introducing us to the person of Jesus, who he is, why he came. But for the first time in Luke this morning, we have verses that are full of tension and distress, a lot of heartache, as those closest to Jesus struggle to recognize who he is, why he came. Luke sets the scene for us. Come with me to Luke 2, and let me read from verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. We start with Jesus' family on an annual pilgrimage. They have traveled from their hometown of Nazareth down to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. Just as God had commanded his people, the Jews, in his law, every year, They were to remember the day that God had brought their ancestors out of Egypt 
to himself to be his own people. And we're told that Jesus on this occasion is 12 years old on this particular pilgrimage. He may have gone down with his parents in previous years, but this time around, it's a bit more significant for him. Jesus is reaching the age of maturity. In Jewish tradition, it was believed that when a boy reached the age of 13, he became responsible for keeping God's law. But even at 12, Jewish boys were prepared, instructed for that responsibility to come. Luke wants to make it clear, and his first readers would have understood, that Jesus at this stage in life is at the age associated with the learning of God's will, his law. Luke's first readers would have understood that. So Jesus and his parents, they go down to Jerusalem, they observe the Passover feast, a a full seven-day celebration, and then their whole group starts to make their way back to Nazareth. And so the tension begins from verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. It's basically a parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? Joseph and Mary would have traveled uh, as part of a much larger group, both to and from Jerusalem, because the journey was not only long, it was pretty dangerous as well. It was common for thieves to take advantage of these long roads between towns in Israel. They became opportunities to assault travelers in small numbers. So Mary and Joseph, they were part of this much larger traveling caravan for protection. And they just assumed that on the way back, Jesus was with his relatives, friends, just part of this large traveling group. They go a whole day's journey, a third of the way back to Nazareth, just over 30 kilometers on foot before they most probably just stop for the night somewhere. They do a head count and they realize, to their horror, Jesus is not there. He's missing. Now for me, these verses have taken on a whole new meaning since I became a dad. I think I'm better able to grasp what Joseph and Mary must have felt here. The idea of losing your own child in this kind of situation. It's horrible. So Mary and Joseph, they search through the entire group carefully, check with all of their relatives, all of their friends. No, Jesus is nowhere to be found. Luke's already told us he's, he stayed back in Jerusalem. And so they race back to the city, fearing for their boy. And after three days, verse 46, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It was common for the temple area in Jerusalem to be used as a place of study and learning in Jesus' day. There would be large open areas in the temple courts where learned rabbis would sit down with younger uh, Jewish boys And the teaching would take the form of a dialogue. Uh, The students would be expected to ask intelligent questions, and the rabbis might just answer their questions directly, or they'd have a bit of to and fro, a conversation. Jesus is found in the midst of one of these study groups, and he's causing quite a stir. For a 12-year-old student novice, he's demonstrating brilliant wisdom and understanding, incredible insight into Holy Scripture. 
and yet his knowledge of God is still forming here. Luke's clear. Jesus is listening. He's learning. Well, just as Jesus in his humanity got hungry, needed to eat, he got tired, he needed to sleep, well, amazingly, he needed to learn as well, to, to grow in his understanding of God's will. He did that perfectly, but he still needed to do it. So at 12 years old, he's hungry to take instruction, to learn more. And that was so important to Jesus that he remained back in the temple as his parents just went off into the distance. Well, those same parents, Mary and Joseph, having found Jesus in the temple courts, demand an explanation. Why do this, son? Have a look in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary and Joseph, they're at their wit's end. It's taken them a day to realize Jesus was missing in the first place, then a day to get back to Jerusalem, and then a day to find him in the temple courts. Three days since they left Jesus behind in the first place. Now, when I was about 12 years old, I went on holiday with my parents to Greece. It's one of our first big holidays together as a family. And I remember one evening in this holiday, we were just going to a dinner that we had booked. It's going to be very special. It's going to be out on a boat at sea. We're all looking forward to it. Uh, the family were getting ready, uh, and I was just outside. I'd already got ready, and I'm being the typical 12-year-old impatient boy, uh, very cocky, just wanted to get down there and start having some fun. So I shouted to mum down the hall, I'm going down to the docks, I'll meet you there. And I doubt my mum ever heard it, but I just disappeared down the road. I got totally lost in this unfamiliar Greek town. I went to the wrong boat at a different dock, and then I realised, turning back, I'm in a strange city, I have no idea where the hotel is. I couldn't find it. And not three days, but just four hours later, I saw my mum running down the road toward me, this lost child in the middle of nowhere, her son. And her face, I remember it, her face was a mixture of this incredible relief and severe anger. <laughs> the most severe anger I had witnessed to that age. Uh, let's just say that that is a scolding I remember well to this day. Well, Mary likewise, is struggling to believe what Jesus has done to them, disappearing for days, not hours, days, without knowledge, without their knowledge. <laughs> when my mom found me after only four hours of searching, she was so distraught, and when I saw what I had done to her, I couldn't stop apologizing. I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And yet with Jesus, things are different. Jesus doesn't show any remorse. He gives no apology for his actions here. I think Luke wants us to feel that. Shock. Jesus doesn't respond the way we would normally expect. No, his response rather drives the point home that Jesus is no ordinary son. He is no ordinary son. He's nothing like me back in Greece, a selfish, impatient boy who just absconded and left his parents in the lurch. 
No, in Jesus' response, we learn that he is, is exactly where he should be. Because again, he's no ordinary son. See what he says in verse 49 in response to Mary. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Jesus answers Mary's question with more questions. He's obviously been hanging out with those rabbis too long. Starts by saying, why were you looking for me? As if they should have known where he would be. And he continues, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Subtly corrects Mary's original question to him. You remember what Mary asked him? Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father, referring to Joseph, no doubt standing with her. And I have been searching for you in great distress. Yet Jesus gently reminds Mary, for him it's not that simple. Now he's aware that he has another father, a greater father than Joseph. Years before, Mary's been told that her child Jesus would be great. He would be the son of the Most High. Jesus is not just Mary's son. He is the incarnate son of God. Not born from Joseph, but by the power of God himself. Jesus is no ordinary child. For him, he must be in his father's house in the place of his father's instruction at this time. Because Jesus, as the son, ultimately came, ultimately, to do his father's will. And that mission, it outweighed his allegiance to anything else, even the desires of his own parents. So to Mary, he says, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And that, that word, must, I must, that's pretty special in Luke's gospel. It's the word that Luke often uses in his gospel to emphasize a crucial part of Jesus' mission. Let's just take a quick look at a few more of them, these must-happen statements. The next one is in chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent for a purpose, to make known the good news of God's kingdom, how through him God would work a salvation. So despite our sin that keeps us from him, keeps us under his judgment, despite that we could be forgiven. We could have relationship with our heavenly father again. So Jesus had to preach the good news of God's kingdom. He was sent for that purpose. Later, chapter 9, Jesus for the first time speaks of what must happen to him to be God's savior king. The son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and on the third day be raised. Again later in Chapter 22, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus' mission would reach its climax as he went to the cross. 
in accordance with his father's will, as he took the penalty for our sin in accordance to his father's will, as he died in our place in accordance to his father's will, and then rose again, conquered sin and death as Lord over all in accordance to his father's will. Jesus knew that he had to do those things. I must, I must. Just as he knew that being back in the temple as a 12-year-old boy was something he must do because his first allegiance could not be to Joseph and Mary as their son as much as he did love them. We see plenty of evidence for that in the Gospels. His first concern was always the will of his heavenly father as God's son. And you know what, friends? The fact that Jesus was obedient as the son of God at all times, that's the best news for us in the world. Because it means he is able to save. It means he is worthy to take our place at the cross, to be the perfect substitute that we need to deal with our sin. He was faithful to God in every way that we have failed. But as the one who had no sin, who never rebelled, he was obedient to his Father's will even unto death. That death he died in our place. So that as we trust in him, we are forgiven on the basis of his blood shed for us, on his perfect righteousness granted to us. We can receive that through faith and through faith alone in him. But for Mary and Joseph, they don't understand at this time. It's all too much. Don't understand why Jesus must be in his father's house. Verse 50 again, they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. That's just so upset because they failed to recognize Jesus properly, to see that though he is their son, Jesus is first and foremost the father's son. Jesus expected them to know where he was, that he would be in his father's house, but Mary and Joseph, they would have been far more comfortable as his parents if Jesus just remained by them, as most 12-year-olds would have in this situation would have saved all the searching, all the heartache, all the grief. You see, Mary and Joseph, they have a domesticated view of Jesus here. He's small in their eyes, just a 12-year-old who belongs with his parents, not the son of God who belongs on the throne. Even for us today, We have the whole testimony of Jesus in his word. Even with this whole story in our hands, we often still fall into the trap of domesticating Jesus, of failing to recognize him for all that he is. Mary could only see her little boy in the temple. How do we domesticate Jesus? Well, perhaps you haven't recognized Jesus as Lord in any sense yet. You enjoy his teaching, maybe think of him as a great moral example to follow, someone who helps you to be the best you can be. Well, it's great that you're listening to Jesus. I'm glad you're here this morning, sitting with us under his word. But all of us have to face up to the challenge he lays at our feet. He doesn't claim to be a moral guide. He claims far, far more than that. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Jesus of history that Luke writes of is the Son of God, 
who died for our sins so that we might have the promise of forgiveness and new life with him. Here's how the popular author C.S. Lewis put it. It's the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Some say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. A moral teacher? He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you're still puzzled by Jesus, still struggling to see him as Lord, can I encourage you to come down on Tuesday evenings, to come down to church and join a group of people who are learning more about him in the God who is there. Just a great opportunity to meet with others who have their own questions and just want to investigate more about the claims of Jesus. Please come down and join them. But even if we are a Christian here today, we recognize Jesus as Lord. Say he's the king of our life. There are often times, aren't there, when, like Mary, Jesus' words and actions, they make us feel quite uncomfortable, even as his people. His will doesn't fit nicely with our own desires. We face that constant temptation to domesticate him in our decisions, in our actions, just to pretend he is actually someone smaller, someone safer, someone easier to manage. You know, maybe we struggle with that at work. Oh, Jesus commands, they just, they just don't fit comfortably with the way my office runs. I can't afford to be honest. I can't afford to put others first. I can't make the gospel a priority there. It just doesn't work that way in my job. I'll lose out. I won't get that bonus, that promotion that I'm hoping for if I really put Jesus first as Lord in that area of my life. Domestic Jesus. Or maybe we downsize him with our finances. Price hikes are coming, we know that. We've got bills to pay. We say to ourselves, I can't really take his will seriously with my money. You know, others can give to the spread of the gospel, to serving the poor and the destitute. Others can do that. Oh, Jesus, he can have everything but my finances. You know, that's got to stay firmly under my control. Domestic Jesus. Friends, whenever we hold something back from Jesus, we refuse to trust his will with our work, our finances, our relationships, anything. It often means that those aspects of our lives are more precious to us than he is to us. We just won't entrust them to him, despite what he has done for us and who he is to us. Jesus has rescued us from eternal condemnation by bringing us under his lordship, redeeming us by his blood, by his love, life given for us, so that now we belong in every sense to him as his people. And that's great because it means we no longer belong to a world enslaved to sin and death. We're no longer living hopeless lives, just waiting for God's judgment. But Jesus never intended to leave us in the state that he found us as he saved us. No, he promises he will work to refine us. And that work can be painful. His greatest concern, which is our, our very best hope, is that we're prepared for eternal life 
with him. The very best thing for us. But it means his word to us at this time will be hard at times. He's going to make us feel uncomfortable. So he reveals attitudes and behaviors down here in our hearts that just don't belong to that great future that we have to look forward to in him. Enjoying him as Lord. So friends, where we do see a rival affection to Jesus in our hearts, a love of money, of reputation, of anything, our response should not be domesticate Jesus, but to love and trust him more. And we're only going to do that together as a church and individually as we get to know him better as Lord. It's the start of a new year. Have you got a plan for getting to know Jesus more in 2014? You worked out when you're going to spend some quality time in his word with him each day and in prayer. Like any relationship, we need to listen to him. We need to talk to him. We're relaunching our growth groups next month. Why not commit again one evening each week this year to meeting with fellow brothers and sisters, sharing in Jesus' words, praying with one another? And that way you'll have some support when the words get painful, when the words get tough. We'll be in a better position to encourage one another in taking him as Lord in every part of our lives rather than domesticating him. Well, as Luke wraps up this story, we see again in Mary the beginnings of this right response to Jesus. Have a look in verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Even though Jesus is God, as a child, he still submits to his parents wherever he can. And Mary, we're told, treasures up these things, all that she's witnessed in this painful episode. She treasures them up in her heart. She doesn't resent Jesus' words to her in the temple. That mild rebuke that she should have known that he'd be there. She reflects on his words. Friends, that's what we should do as his people, as we are hit with hard truths by him. Not domesticate him, not reject his words, pretend that we know better, but reflect on them, treasure them, trust and obey them. See, unlike Mary back in the temple at this time, we now, now know Jesus as our risen Lord of life. So let's recognize him with all that we are. Friends, let's be repenting over all the ways we know we've been holding back from him. Let's keep on resolving to live for him as Lord, rejoicing in him more and more so that on that final day that we have to look forward to in Christ, at his return, he can say to us, his church, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that in him we have a certain and sure salvation because he did honor you and fulfilled your will in every way, even unto death. Thank you, 
Lord Jesus, that you took the place, our place, at that cross so that we might be spared the judgment we deserve on our sin. We might have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life with you. And Lord, we pray that in the light of that great salvation and the blessings that we have now received by your grace, you would help us to not domesticate you as the Lord of our lives, but to seek you and your kingdom first, to rejoice in you and your love and your faithfulness, and to keep you as our king as we look forward to that day when you return. And I pray we would all hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.